Hello and welcome everyone to Conversations in Digital Learning, a podcast produced by the Digital Learning Collaborative, or more commonly known as the DLC. The DLC is a membership group dedicated to exploring, producing, and disseminating data, information, news, and best practices in digital learning. My name is Katherine Kennedy, and I'm your host for today's show. Before we get started, I'd like to share a quick disclaimer. We invite a variety of guests to join our podcasts. Their views are not necessarily representative of the Digital Learning Collaborative or its members. Today we are here to talk about access and equity in digital learning, where we are working to close opportunity gaps that exist. And we are honored to have two special guests with us. Dr. Nicole Howard is an assistant professor and program coordinator at the University of Redlands, where her teaching and research are related to equity in STEM and computer science education, as well as issues related to professional learning for teachers. We also have Shamari Jones, who is the Director of Equity and Strategic Engagement at Bellevue School Districts in the state of Washington. He serves as a powerful advocate for and witness to the experiences of students of color, helping district leaders identify, confront, and dismantle structures that limit the potential of those often underserved. Thank you both again for joining us today. Let's jump in. Shamari, can you start off by talking a little bit about Bellevue School District, as well as a little bit about the role that you play there? Absolutely. Bellevue is a suburb of Seattle, about eight miles down the street. A medium-sized school district that's about 20,000 or so students with some pretty unique demographics, very much more unique than most of our cities across the country of this magnitude. I am the Director of Equity and Strategic Engagement, uh, which means I oversee our district equity efforts as a consultant to the school board, the superintendent and the cabinet. And then I oversee policy development on varying committees with different board members, and I oversee uh, the development of and hopefully soon completion of the development of the family engagement department that we have here, that we're building here in our organization. And been here for five years lived in Seattle for 14. Thanks so much, Shamari. Nicole, would you like to jump in and talk a little bit about what you do and your role at the University of Redlands? I'm Nicole Howard. I've been at University of Redlands for uh, three years, so I'm going into my fourth year now as an assistant professor, and I also um, am a program coordinator for our multiple subject and single subject credential and master's pathways. And prior to coming to Redlands, I uh, taught part-time at Chapman University, but I also worked in Santa Ana Unified School District, which has, you know, large numbers similar to your district. And also, uh, so I worked as, I was an elementary teacher before moving to district level, where I was um, over there, uh, blended learning and personalized learning initiative and worked with about 2,500 teachers in looking at ways to think about pedagogy and tech as opposed to um, either just not using the technology out of frustration or just adopting everything, you know, that came across in uh, mm-hmm. uh, their, their plates there. And so it was, it was a 
really, it was good work. I kind of always knew I'd move into higher ed. And so um, since being at Redlands, I've uh, kind of done more work on the digital equity side through my work with ISTE. And I guess that's what brought me to this call. I am so excited to have you both here. I'm going to jump in and ask Nicole first, could you start out by talking about the work that you're doing specific to access and equity in digital learning? Sure. Uh, that's a um, a question that I feel like is ongoing in the sense that it's work that evolves over time. Right now, I've, I'm really focusing in on working with our future teachers and preparing them for addressing access and digital equity issues on their campuses that they will inevitably work on. So I, my focus really has been on supporting them in understanding that it's it starts with creating opportunities for students, for K-12 students, and really highlighting the importance of doing so. Also raising awareness to the fact that they may go into schools that are in rural communities where there, will, there might be low access, very few devices. Connectivity to Wi-Fi may not be the same as what they actually experience as a teacher from their own home community. And so I really encourage them to think about ways that they'll address these issues when they go in to their classrooms. So that's on the practice side, the practical side of things. I'm really trying to support our future teachers. And then there's the research side of it and really trying to understand why it is that we continue to have this issue and really focusing in on ways that we can support not only students, but also parents and the communities in which our students and parents reside. You mentioned that there are certain things that you're identifying as you are doing your work in the research specifically. What are those types of things that you've keyed in on as to maybe why we aren't as far along as we should be in this area? Well, as far as why we're not as far along as we should be, I do, I am finding that that has a lot to do with resources within communities. And we've been tackling this problem as educators at the classroom level, which is what we should be doing. But I'm also seeing that we need to attack this from the policy level as well. And so I know that there have been efforts to pass bills and proposals that will bring in better infrastructures into communities. And I think that those things are very important. So I am seeing also that within those communities, the population of students typically are Latino, Latina families, um, our students, and then we also have um, our African-American students. So we're finding that although initially we aren't looking at race when we bring up digital equity, that race is a factor in terms of which students have access to resources. And I'm also noticing that there's been a great push across different counties within districts to build equity frameworks and equity plans. And digital equity is sometimes an afterthought. So I really, I mean, I would ideally love to see the digital equity conversation happening with the equity conversation because there is an intersection. 100% agree. And Shamari, could you talk specifically about the work that you're doing at Bellevue School District with regard to access and equity in digital learning and follow up on maybe some of the threads that Nicola started? Absolutely. I think equity uh, and the work that we're doing here in the Bellevue School District really makes me think of how much work needs to be done 
across the nation. And I really echo Nicole's identification that this is almost a national emergency. We need to really attack this conversation at the policy level and ensure to the level we've even insisting that we're doing more for our communities that are uh, most in need of access to these resources. Here in Bellevue, you know, we tried to close the achievement gap or have been for a multitude of years with now a new emphasis, of course, on the opportunity gap under which digital equity, in my belief, falls in. And through some of the efforts that we have attempted, I would say that we are really still, you know, in the in the fourth quarter of uh, trying to get some sort of headway towards making an impact that's substantial, measurable, and that will be felt by those who are seeking to serve. And so one way that as a district, we tried to provide supports to uh, the entire family is through ensuring that the students that we here in the district serve uh, have access to a take-home PC. But then, of course, we discovered that not everyone has access to internet when they get home. You know, we really wanted to suffice in supporting the families with more than just their kid having a way to get on the internet, but, you know, for mom and dad to apply for jobs, for ways to do research around things that you would like to grow in, et cetera. So we're trying to now transition towards providing now access to Wi-Fi units that we want to send home with the students in the event that they do not have them. But on a global scale, we are looking at policies and practices. We are having discussions and bringing into the fold our community so we can truly know what the community's needs are. Um, we are uh, identifying areas of how the infrastructure of our system is working and trying to move away or remove barriers for folks to feel like they have a sense of belonging in our system to be able to ask for what it is that they need specifically. Um, and it's no easy feat. I think that the the centrifuge of some of the challenges that we experience as a system relies on the people, you know, who are in the system who have not historically had to believe or think uh, in ways different than they were raised. And so um, we're putting forth tremendous amounts of effort and transitioning what folks understand through professional development, through exposure, and through opportunities for them to discuss uh, what's coming up for them when they are engaging in uh, areas that are different than what it is that they have been taught. Thanks, Jamari. I wanted to follow up on something that you mentioned earlier, too, about the family engagement focus that you have. It's not just about the students, but it's also about engaging with the families to empower them to be advocates for the support that their students need in order to be successful in their learning process. And I guess one of the things that I think about often is if these parents and or guardians have had really horrible experiences with the lack of support and opportunities in their experience, is there a point in time when you're working with them where you have to help them change their mindset and really empower them to be advocates for their students' learning? Yeah, great question. I think that part of what my responsibility is, is to identify you know, our gap areas. I believe that our families experience similar oppressions and similar situations where this gap maintains that are then, you know, similar to their students in ways that oftentimes are uh, created by the systems and structures that are around them. And so my role, especially with regard to families, is to ensure and maintain a conversation around how we continuously support 
uh, through providing agency, platform for voice, an invitation that is not simply, you know, via email or through something digital, uh, really going to the source, really spending some op- some energy and inviting people to the conversation that they haven't been invited to before. The name of the game is agency here. And with agency, with great hope, the agency will often offer folks the confidence necessary in order to uh, fight for the rights. You know, free and public education is the right of all the families that we serve. And we want to ensure that those families who we don't serve very well know where to go know who is the appropriate person to go to and feel confident and comfortable enough to be vulnerable to say that these are the things that are not working for me. Uh, it's going to be an uphill grind uh, for us because I don't know that in today's day and age um, that with regard to the education system and the structure that exists, that we put as much emphasis on providing the support to the family as much as we do the student. And when I came through school, it was it felt like my teacher was a part of my family. I could probably ask many students today what their experience is, and they don't know much outside of uh, the classroom about their instructors. And so we have to change the landscape of you know, connection and relationship uh, in order for families to feel secure um, and as though they have agency to continue forward in our district in ways that we would love for them to participate. There's just been some amazing things that have been shared thus far that really have me thinking about just starting from the last point that was made, resources, right, and what our students have access to and then supporting parents as well. And I think about our obligation to make sure that students have every textbook that they need. And now if we're changing what public education looks like and we're saying now students must use these digital tools and these digital learning resources, I do think that it should become an obligation on our end to make sure that they have access to all of the materials that they'll need. So if it's no longer that a teacher is using a textbook and using paper-based materials or that and everything is becoming digital, then we need to provide what replaces the textbook to make sure that our students can do what they need to do and have access to what they need to learn. And that even extends to home. And so, I, I mean, I just think the points were uh, very well made and, and important to think about because homework looks different. The learning in the classroom space looks different. Um, and if you feel like you go home and you can't do what you need to do, then you don't come back to school feeling as though you belong at that school campus. You, that sense of belonging that a student needs to feel is definitely impacted when you can't really fulfill what your teacher is expecting of you. And then for a parent, parents do feel it. We, you know, I'm a parent myself and I know we feel it when, when our child comes home and they weren't able to do what they need to do and they get back to school and, and it's hard for a student to sit all day and say, it's my parents' fault. Right. I mean, you 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 want to be in that space to learn and to grow, but you also love being home. You love your family and you don't want it to seem as though your parents can't support you in the way that you need to be supported. So I think those three points of sense of belonging, the opportunity gap and agency are very important when we have the conversation about digital equity. Yeah. And can I, I want to piggyback a little bit because. You know, in this landscape of, you know, where we're headed, you know, going back to one of Nicole's earlier points, like 
we're heading in a direction within our country that is really hyper-focused on the use of technology, you know, what have you, digitally or programming or whatever opportunities that we don't even know are coming in this particular field. And like, if we're even going to offer relevance to our students and ensure that they are marketable and competitive in future ways, we are going to have to put forth some serious effort. We're at the cusp of, you know, either a crisis or, you know, a beautiful opportunity for inclusion with this single point right here around digital technology and whether or not we get this right. You know, it is our obligation to ensure that we are making the most of our diversity that we experience here in this country by ensuring that there is you know, multiple perspectives and, you know, diverse faces and all of the opportunities that are coming available down the line. So I know that Bellevue School District is around the technology area of Washington. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. And so in terms of, and this is something that I picked up on from your Ed Week article from the Leaders to Learn From, and which I absolutely loved. And again, your, the work that you're doing there is, is amazing and, and really important. I wonder you. too, the, the other things that you struggle with as you are trying to do this, you're, you're not only having to change the, what is being done at the family level, but you're also having to maybe even re-educate the other families in the school to understand that this is changing. Like we need to change this in order for everybody to get what they need to be successful. Mm-hmm. And so how has that conversation gone? And I, I remember, like I said, back to that article, just being amazed at some of the things that you, you were hitting up against. And, and I appreciated what you said, like, we have to know what our blind spots are. If you can continue that thread, that would be great. Yeah, sure. I, I think that Growing pains are a real thing. And in any family, you know, if I were to identify the Bellevue School District, its students, its staff, and its community as a family, in any family, when you begin to do things differently, there will be some pain points. You know, there will be some folks who don't want things to be done differently. There will be some people who don't know what different is going to feel like who show up, maybe in opposition of that difference. Uh, And my job and the role in which I play here is to identify, you know, where there are massive gaps and try to uh, fill those gaps with opportunity for those who historically have not had them. And so, yes, we do come about having to be a part of conversations that are written in conflict from time to time, and that's okay. I think that the ultimate goal is to make sure we're hearing from the voices of everyone who's going to be impacted. You know, in a body of work that I have done before, you know, focusing on adaptive leadership, we often relate this to uh, what is called inviting the stranger or the person who's not always in the conversation, person who maybe isn't even invited because we're afraid of what their response are going, is going to be or, you know, how they may prevent us from moving forward at the pace that we would like. And, you know, I promise you that the invitation of the stranger, yes, while it may, you know, cause you some heartburn in the moment, it is the best strategy towards unifying an entire community towards 
a collective end goal. I have learned and I've made wrong turns in the past with how I've introduced new concepts and new theories. I got pushed back so hard that sometimes they didn't come back up. And sometimes it's taken a whole lot of time and effort to bring them back to the fold. But uh, through this sort of collectivist and collective impact strategy of bringing people to the table, it's been greatly beneficial overall. Thanks, Shamari. Uh, Nicole, I'm going to jump back over to you and kind of do a follow-up with regard to what Shamari was just sharing in terms of the transformations, in terms of the changes or shifts in the context you've worked in. Have you seen similar things happening? We've definitely seen a shift. I think, so coming into working in a teacher education program, I have definitely talked with other teacher educators who maybe were also thinking like myself that students would, at this stage, um, have access to devices, would have the, the Wi-Fi connectivity, would have considered different things than what maybe the stage at which they're at right now, than what we, you know, differently than what we expected. And so we sometimes, even though my focus has been on trying to prepare future teachers, there have been times where I've had to put a different hat on or shift my lens and really think about, wait a minute, I have students within my own class who don't have access to what they need in order to prepare to be a teacher. And so where I'm seeing now a a great need is it's not only on the classroom level, on the K-12 classroom level, but it's also thinking about it on a university level too. What about the students who are coming there to extend their learning, to be prepared, to become professionals in whatever their field may be? What what resources do they have access to? You know, are they able, you know, and they could come from, we have students that come from, you know, different backgrounds and different communities. And so coming in, they may not have uh, what they need. We might have students who are first gen who are on certain scholarships. And so what scholarships are, funds are we setting aside to make sure that students can also have not just textbooks, but also the digital resources and tools that they uh, need access to. So, I mean, we're definitely seeing similar challenges, but slightly different, of course, than, than what we'd experience in a K-12 classroom. Thanks, Nicole. I was a teacher educator for about three years, and one of the things that I felt most strongly about was trying to unpack the pre-service teacher's prior experience and notions and about how they were taught. Uh, because there's this notion of you teach the way that you were taught. So having to truly unpack all of that baggage that comes with a teacher um, into their pre-service education program. I think some of the mindsets that come with them can easily be perpetuated. And because of this, I think it makes it all the more important, especially when it comes to access and equity. And both of you are doing that work in your own contexts and having these difficult conversations with people around what needs to change in order to shift the dynamic. But there is that potential where, especially in your context, Nicole, within teacher education programs across the country, if the teacher education program is not at that leading edge and really having those hard conversations with their student teachers 
it could potentially stay the same. And I mean, education, it takes a long time, as we all know, to change things. And, and so to me, I, I, that's one of the things that is always in my mind is unless we're willing to change, like Shamari was saying, it takes a while for that change to actually happen. So in each of your contexts, how do you approach a situation where potentially a system and or the individuals within that system are not ready for the change that needs to happen in order for all students to be served? I was actually having a conversation very similar to this yesterday in stating that teachers oftentimes begin to learn how to be teachers when they first enter school, pre-K, kindergarten. That's where the example comes from, you know, all the way through teacher prep programs. And I worked with a couple of them here in the Seattle area only to discover that there's very little work from our local schools being done around ensuring that when teachers are approaching graduation, that they're proficient in racial consciousness uh, and that they're proficient in family engagement. Two things that I think are vital and especially in my community with the changing demographic of uh, who presently lives here versus who lived here 20 years ago. One thing that I've discovered is that professional development, while it sounds amazing, it doesn't always tend to land in the effective category, especially the longer it gets. You know, two hours versus 16 hours worth of professional development statistically has a huge difference in what people are ingesting and taking away. And the longer, the less. And so what I have discovered is that multiple short spurts of information to pervasively continue to keep people in in the conversation and to provide outlets for folks to discuss and ask questions or seek greater depth of expertise or tutelage or support, I feel like that works a whole lot better. You know, if I can give you a three-minute snippet of something to watch and have you work with a partner to break down what that means for you and your practice, it's going to potentially help support you in ways greater than one and done. You know, you're coming for this at the beginning of the year. You're being taught, you know, a flood of varying things that we have expectations of you or for you this year. And then go off and do it, you know, and make us proud. It's just the way I think people learn. And I also think, you know, giving people multiple modalities to learn from. I love a video much more than I love, you know, a 16-page document. And so, you know, really catering what you are offering or delivering to the audience that you want to receive it and either regurgitate it or use it in their practice will be more favorable. I can add to that in terms of what we've done on our end and also just um, first going back a bit and thinking about that professional learning piece. And I remember while I um, was in Santa Ana Unified School District that around the time when I moved to district level, we had the Hour of Code come in and we had some teachers who were really excited about Hour of Code and we had others who felt like they just weren't prepared to offer students the opportunity to have the Hour of Code in their classes. They were more concerned about what if I can't, you know, help a student do X, Y, and Z. And in my mind, the best 
approach to, to resolving that was to think about what we offer for our students, which are coding clubs. And I introduced a teacher's coding club. And so we invited teachers out, any teacher who wanted to come out to district office and actually explore in the same way that we were asking them to explore with their students, they had the opportunity to do that. And that evolved into not just coming in and playing with the apps and, and going through the hour of code experience as if they were students, but it moved to them having conversations about how to connect it to instruction, math instruction, you know, language arts, how to connect it in a way where they could continue to integrate it into their class time throughout the entire school year. And it was because we just opened the space up and invited them in to learn about something that they wanted to learn about. And I think that is a huge issue with professional learning. It's that we want to mandate what teachers need to learn. And if we find out from teachers what they're interested in learning and how they want to learn it and apply that approach, you know, we may see more positive results if we allow choice for teachers in the way we expect choice from students. Another thing that we've done on our university level is uh, we created what we call um, Achieving Digital Equity. It was a conference and it was the first year when I came in and it was sort of my thinking about how do we learn as educators, uh, teacher educators, we go to conferences. So if we do a mini version of 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 a conference and call it Achieving Digital Equity, where it wasn't just faculty, we invited our community partners, so our current K-12 educators and district support staff. And so they came all together into one space and talked about how we were using digital resources and technology across the K-16 spectrum, shared ideas, and really talked about how do we bridge the gap between what our teacher candidates are learning in their program and then what they're encountering when they go into districts. What do we need to do to bridge the gap? And that was a really honest and rich conversation that took place. And I'd say that's one step in the change process is to have that honest conversation about what you want to change and why you want to change it. And then come up with an action plan from there. So I kind of think that's where we're at now is thinking about what steps do we want to take to keep that conversation going? Because we know how to narrow gaps and we haven't quite figured out how to close them. And so I think if we can continue to narrow them by having these conversations, then we're making progress. Following back up with both of your conversations, especially with the professional learning space, I feel like the idea of those short, sweet snippet, like Shamara, you were talking about, have come to fruition in things like micro-credentialing and micro-courses. And then, you know, following up, Nicole, with your thread on personalization of professional learning so that you're not just going there and thinking everybody has to have the same thing, but you're really picking and choosing what is going to be geared directly towards you and your goals as a, as a professional uh, is really important. And it's, it's a, it's an important piece that's happening, I think more and more now. From here, I'd like for you to talk a little bit about what you're seeing uh, in terms of changing for the better, and then also what you're seeing that still needs to be changed. Do either of you have anything to share in that regard? I mean, I think I can talk about the latter one for the entire hour, (laughs) for sure. I guess on the what's changing for the better, 
on a teacher preparation landscape, what's changing for the better is that we're recognizing that we do need to prepare future teachers for encountering a different type of classroom management now that they will have devices to think about and other things to consider. We're also doing better at preparing them for addressing issues at the intersection of digital equity and equity uh, because our program I know has already, it's already an educational justice program that thinks about diverse students and diverse populations. And now we're talking about other other areas of diversity, as well as, you know, how to interact with the technologies and thinking about emerging technologies, right, that that will continue to evolve what we have access to. So I think we're doing better at raising the fact that things are changing and that you have to be prepared for the change. I don't know yet what it looks like because we're still in that process. So I, I, I just know we're doing better at preparing. And to follow that, you know, I've surveyed a bunch of people uh, over the past several months about their feelings on the present status of racial relations in our country. And while the answers based on people's experiences have varied, I think there was a common theme that folks felt as though where we are moving forward is in identifying that, A, there is a substantial issue that uh, we must address, and there's a strong belief that we are empowering more voices to come to the table in opposition to the you know hundreds of years' worth of oppression that many of our racial subgroups have experienced. And so not to say that that by any means is you know, a a step towards ensuring that we are resolving the issue per se, but there is light that, you know, there are folks who are in discussion about this so much so that, you know, you're seeing a trend across the country of folks feeling compelled, whether they wanted to do it or not, they're feeling compelled that it's essential that we identify our position on race, race relations and racial equity and uh, some to the degree of creating policies around how we will operate moving forward in our attempts to create a more just society. And, you know, these are words on paper, but they're words on paper that we can be held accountable for and held accountable to by those members of our community who are really standing up for justice and ensuring that there is some change. I can even, um, I would love to add to that too and say that also what we can do better as we talk about access and equity is to push the conversation beyond devices and really think about the opportunity gap, yes, but also representation. You know, do the students feel as though they are well represented within those digital apps that are selected, you know, by teachers and that teachers are using? So, to have some more thought about what we're adopting, I think is important because I know I've encountered students who have felt frustrated because they don't see themselves in the tools that they're asked to use. So I think as we have, we recognize we have a diverse population of students. And so not just at the device level, are we making sure that they have access, but are we also making sure that they feel that they are represented within that space? There is so much truth to that. And I'm thinking about the landscape of, you know, who we are as an organization. Back to something you said earlier, Catherine, about, you know, where I sit in this city of Bellevue and all the people around me. You know, I have, 
you know, uh, Amazon headquarters and the headquarters division of Microsoft and T-Mobile down the street and Expedia's across the way. And like, and we have all of these major corporations that focus on their operations being done through some digital platform or in some digital way. How little I see myself or my students in those opportunities and, you know, how much more those students would benefit from, you know, not just the access going back to the earlier statement that Nicole made, not just the access of having, you know, those resources in your backyard, but like, how are we coaching folks to and through the process of how to get here? How are we utilizing, you know, staff members, at Microsoft to come back and provide mentorship and support to students who even have whispered an interest, you know, in that particular direction, or even before folks get interested, like how are we hyper exposing to, you know, these particular pathways that we don't yet know whether or not they're interested, but they won't make, you know, choices otherwise without having had some experiences over here. Right. And so, I've seen some little things that have happened in the past few years I've been in this role. I have seen some of our corporations attempt to step up, maybe not very fervently, but uh, certainly put forth some effort in saying that, well, we at least do something. And, you know, we've got more to do. Part of that is my job. Part of that is your job. And others who will listen to this thing, that's your job as well. I totally agree with what you both have brought up here and that... While there are things that have definitely improved, there are definitely opportunities for improvement as we move forward. Coming back full circle, I think it's having those conversations within your community, within your relationships with every single stakeholder that you're with, but also with the students and their families and the community at large, especially those groups that you said Shamari could do a little bit better in connecting with the schools and to be that representation, Nicole, like you mentioned, so that the students know this is an opportunity that is for me and I can do this and giving them that agency is so very important. Uh, I just want to reiterate that, you know, in the realm of especially, you know, from where I sit on this conversation, K-12, uh, it is vital uh, to not just expose our students to these access opportunities, but also to include their families, because we must serve the entire unit in order to make the necessary forward movements that we're seeking uh, towards some transformation more globally. Thank you both so much again for taking the time to meet with me today to talk about access and equity and digital learning I believe that this is going to be a fruitful uh, conversation starter for many other people in our community. And I greatly appreciate, again, your time for doing this. Thank you for the invitation to the conversation, Catherine. And thank you for being my gracious co-host, Nicole. This is a powerful conversation that I think needs to be continued and that I would love to be in more as we seek to collectively transform the ways that you know, we operate as a nation, quite honestly. And so uh, I look forward to deepening and expanding uh, my exposure to what you all are thinking. 
Well, thank you both. I appreciate the invitation as well. And I do think this was a, a good conversation that hopefully doesn't end here. And I, I know we've talked about it already, just the importance of conversations like this happening at the policy level. So hopefully we have an opportunity to see that happen as well. From all of us at the Digital Learning Collaborative and Evergreen Education Group, thank you so much for listening. Let's continue the conversation on Twitter at the DLCEDU and at the DLC's Digital Learning Annual Conference. Learn more about the DLC at digitallearningcolab.com. We'll be back soon with another episode of Conversations in Digital Learning. Enjoy your day.